I'm thankful for the privilege um, to address you um, this morning, this morning, on a topic that is um, very relevant. He's going to help us with the PowerPoint here. Superior. And as we'll get going. We're talking about the word, the world in wokeness. Obviously, the word of God is what we want to discuss and proclaim and how it interfaces with the current movement of wokeness. And here's the thing about it. Um, Much has been written about this. I'm, I'm sure that maybe you have read a great deal as well about the topic. Uh, it is not going anywhere. Uh, it's a part of our culture, at least at this stage in the life of society. Excellent. There we go. Thank you. So answering questions and showing conflicts. This is really what we want to do. Answer some questions about um, the woke movement. Give you a big picture of it. I do say this, there is so much that can be said. I even this morning was wondering how much do I say because at some point in time you can say so much that you really are not helpful because it becomes sort of a a barrage of information and quotes uh, and examples and references um, that a person can walk away saying, I'm not sure if I really understand it any more than I did when I walked in. And hopefully that's not the case. I mean, that's the... Uh, that's a a dagger to the heart of any teacher um, because at any point in time you want people to walk away with a better understanding than when they came. And hopefully your understanding will at least be equal and hopefully better when it comes to the movement. And so I say that to let you know um, that's not a scapegoat. Uh, That's just a reality. Uh, The movement itself is quite large. Um, There are people within the movement that have different positions, even different definitions of how they would understand some of the terms um, that we are going to um, refer to today. Um, I could say perhaps even this way, if a person were to say even right now, let's talk about evangelical conservatism. Hmm, what would be the definition of that? How do you define that? Um, because people would view it differently. Um, And in this movement, there are some markers, obviously, that tell us here is the movement itself, but I do want to let you know within the movement, um, there are varying interpretations and expressions and applications, but we need to get to the core of it, I think. Um, Part of the reason I'm doing this is because actually this past semester at the Master's Seminary, I taught an elective on this issue, and it was entitled, and I'm just going to give you the course description right here. Social justice, wokeness in the church is a study of the contemporary debate on the church's role in societal justice. The course is designed to challenge students to discern the proper function of the church in social justice, cultural and racial tensions, and ministerial associations. The course will aid the student in adequately defining the key terms used in describing the movement, applying the biblical passages that address justice and discerning the proper priorities of the local church while addressing relevant needs and confronting sins based on race and class. 
even in that, needs an interpretation, doesn't it? (laughs) I understand. (laughs) I'm not um, fooled by these things. So it's a contemporary debate. Uh, It's not something that people are really having, although social justice um, has been around for decades, but we weren't really having the debate. It wasn't something that at times was causing division in churches, and there are many that I know it's caused division in them. There are people here even today. You may be in this very room. I know there are several that are in our fellowship group in Anchored. I talk to them, and I say, well, um, when did you start coming to Grace Church and why? And often they, I shouldn't say often, enough that it was, you should pay attention to it, that uh, we started coming because my pastor went woke. Okay, what does that mean, that he went woke? Well, all of a sudden, examples might be. All of a sudden, we're going through the book of such and such, and then on a given Sunday, he comes up and he apologizes for being white. Well, you were white for the last 15 years. Uh, Why are you sorry about being white now? (laughs) Is it something that you did? (laughs) Then make that right with the Lord and keep on keeping on. Um, so things like this happen. All of a sudden, we were, we were hearing expository messages, and now the sermons are based on, quote, the relevant issues in society and how can we as a church be more sensitive to those around us. Now, and there are obviously certain terms that one may use that you couldn't possibly reject it. I mean, would you ever say, well, we are not a church that wants to be sensitive to others around us. We're the insensitive church. <laughs> well, see how that affects your church membership. Uh, of course we wouldn't say that. Or we wouldn't say things like, well, we, we are totally indifferent to society um, because society is going to hell. So what's the point of it anyway? Well, then what's the point of your life? You're here for a purpose, are you not? And what is that purpose is to be a light in society. And you may even notice in the description for the course, I talk about societal justice. And so let me just make that statement right now. Uh, when it comes to social justice as it's used in most contemporary contexts, I disagree with it because with social justice, it has attachments, ideologies that I would reject and, and you would surely uh, reject as well. However, you say, well, why did you use societal justice even here in the course description? And it even passed through. It got through the master seminary. You taught it and you may teach it again. What's happening is the master seminary going woke. Um, hardly, <laughs> hardly, but it's a class that can interact with the issues and pastors that are here now will go into an environment where maybe there's division, even in their congregation, uh, they are trying to seek fellowship with other pastors and they're not on the same page in these issues. And how do you discern it? So I would say societal justice. Here's the reality. We all believe in biblical justice. Absolutely. That is, God's enactment of his divine principles in society. Society is held to a certain standard, and God has decided what that standard is, and it's based on his character of being a just God. Now he's saying we should manifest that in our everyday life in society. Justice doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in communities. It happens in neighborhoods. It happens in societies. So in its purest sense... Um, one could say that you believe in social justice, but now because of everything that comes with social justice and that language, we avoid it. Uh, And so we concede that. I'll concede it. Um, But I have had many discussions with people, 
and we strain ourselves to find another word for something other than social justice. And I, I ask that question, then where is justice supposed to take place? If not in society, if not in your community, uh, if not in your state, if not in your country. Um, God wants us to display just behavior and proclaim his just principles and commands to the world. So from that standpoint, um, we shouldn't be too bothered by it as long as we understand context. Context is a very important thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, How many of you, when you study the word of God, uh, what is one of the first things you think about when you open the pages of the Bible? Well, of course it is God's word, but what else do you think about? Context, do you not? You think before and after. Um, You may think, well, this is Pauline. That's a bit different than Petrine. Uh, How they use words are different. Uh, Their intentions are different. Uh, You read a book, um, and there's a section of a book, and there are transitions in the book. Right now, I'm going through in in our group Isaiah 40 to 48. The next time I teach will be Isaiah 43. Uh, there's a transition in the book. 1 through 39, uh, we see God uh, condemning, speaking to the nations. Then there is the time of the Assyrians, and the time of the Assyrians ends in 39. Um, Shennacherib is uh, defeated. Um, he is killed even in his own temple. And now beginning in chapter 40, the time of the Babylonians is coming. We see the transition beginning Um, in the other chapters, but now it's here. Now it's Babylon that comes. Uh, So context uh, is always important. And so words uh, must be understood in a given context. And so we talked about key terms. What are some of those terms that we need to understand? Because people use terms, and sometimes those terms change. Even in the previous seminar, um, was on fasting and prayer, and I talked about how words change. Um, I talked about the word nuance, and now a lot of people that are in the woke movement talk about, well, the nuances of truth. Well, but nuance is a perfectly fine word. I've used nuance, I can't tell you how many times, to talk about especially word meanings. You know, there's a nuance to the word uh, when you look at it in the Greek or the Hebrew. That's nuance. There's even nuances in theology. Uh, Nuance is a perfectly fine word. But now uh, nuance means something else. Because people in the woke movement use it a particular way. And I was kidding with them a bit in the last class and said, um, it seems that one can go away um, for a vacation and come back again. I mean, it's like I went away and I came back and I used woke. Now people are saying that I've gone woke um, because I used the word nuance. Well, I'm going to continue to use the word nuance in a given context. Um, words in a context have meaning. What are some just several other words that we should understand. Um, one book, which um, is um, Critical Race Theory and Introduction, um, third edition, that uh, I've gone through and highlighted and interacted with. Uh, curious enough, it is called An Introduction to Critical Race Theory. Um, in both um, authors that wrote it, Stelfonic and Delgado, um, both PhDs, But uh, you would be surprised if you were to look at that book, and I would commend you just to read it so that perhaps you, it's not a hard read at all, so that you can know some of the issues, if you will, Um, but um, not a footnote in it. Uh, That bothers me. How can you (laughs) write a book uh, that is about critical race theory and introduction and not have a footnote in it? 
and, and partly the reason that it is that way is that they come with a great deal of presupposition. Um, we are writing to people who already um, understand this or gravitate toward it. And in one sense, we're just furthering our indoctrination of you uh, in critical race theory. Because if not, if normally if you're going to write an introduction to something that's supposed to be an academic um, discipline, you would surely have it footnoted original sources and you could interact with it, look at those sources and be engaged by it. Well, you won't find it in this. And you have statements like, well, we already know. And those of you know this is our position, uh, which is unacceptable. But there are some words that they interact with in several critical legal studies, which they would say is a legal movement that challenged liberalism um, from the left. It should be from the left, denying that law is neutral, that every case has a simple, correct answer, and that rights are of vital importance. And what were they challenging? No, we don't see that it is neutral. Um, We see that it is bent towards prejudice because of racism. Now, pause for a moment. Uh, men and women are, you agree with me, are wicked, are they not? And those without Christ surely are. Uh, I think we would all agree and must agree uh, people can express that wickedness in different ways. And one way may be um, through prejudice. Do we all agree with that? People can be prejudiced. Um, People can exhibit racism, bigotry towards other people. And if those people have a certain degree of influence or power, that will be manifest in that context. I'll say more about that later. They talk about critical race feminism, the application of critical race theory to issues of concern to women of color. So critical race theory, and now there's critical race feminism. So not only just looking at race in a sense, but now we're going to focus on how these issues are particular to women and then even women of color. Now there is also a a discipline that would look at um, the sense of feminism. That's another expression of critical theory that would say how women are, in fact, oppressed in society. And then there's critical race masculism. And these are all from CRT. Um, The application of critical race theory to the construction of male norms in society. That is, they're saying, okay, here's a society. How does that society interact with one another? Uh, how should men and women interact with one another? And we see that there is a, a masculine element, and that a masculine element, what do you think, in their mind, does it uplift women or oppress women? Well, it oppresses women. And so that's why you find in society today, there's so much criticism about being a masculine man. Um, where are all the men today in here? Are the men here? Do you, do you not want to be masculine? Hold on a second now. (laughs) Um, Let's repeat that. (laughs) Do all the men in this room not want to be masculine? That's indeed so masculine, but we're going to define that from a biblical perspective, amen? Not from a worldly perspective. From a worldly perspective, it may be oppressive. It, It would absolutely be unacceptable. But from a biblical perspective, yes, God has made man and woman. We are distinctly different. We are very different. Amen to that? And that's a good thing, is it not? Uh, when I first met my wife, she wasn't, you know, we met actually in what's, what's now the Welcome Center 
Back then, it was called the Tape Shack. Who remembers the Tape Shack? Wow, you have to go back. The Tape Shack. Okay, for those who have never heard of the Tape Shack, Pastor John's messages or other people's messages, they were on cassette tapes. I know some of you are thinking, what is that? (laughs) I've heard of it. I I think I saw it at the Smithsonian once. (laughs) Cassettes. And so you could go and you could get a cassette and take it and you could bring it back. And I was a first-year seminary student. I'm working in the Tape Shack. And my wife, Joanna, comes in, and she asked for a, a series of messages about male and female differences by Eddie Egerich. And, uh, yeah, I remember those, huh? And um, I said, well, okay, yeah, they're here. And, uh, <laughs> and I said to her, and she tells the story better than I do, uh, which is, well, I don't quite understand why people need to listen to these um, cassettes it's quite obvious that there are male and female differences. And she looked at me like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> I said, and I said these words. I said, trust me, I know. I have six sisters. <laughs> I know that there are male and female differences, okay? And that's a beautiful thing, but I don't know if I need to listen to four cassette tapes on it. Now, she walked out, and these were her words. Later on, I found that this is what she thought. She said to herself, that's the kind of guy that you avoid. <laughs> He thinks he knows everything. Well, 29 years later, here I am. (laughs) Right. So we can, you know, in a given context, we think masculine, it can be incorrectly stated. We understand that. There's nothing masculine about not sharing with your wife or not talking to your wife. There's nothing masculine about not admitting your sin and your sinfulness and humbling yourself. There's surely not anything masculine by not being gentle, particularly since Jesus Christ, the greatest man ever, it says he was gentle and lowly of spirit. So they misunderstand things. Then there's critical race theory itself. uh, And that's a progressive legal movement that seeks to transform the relationship between race and racism and power. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. What is this power? Um, that certain people have. Now, what is called Latino critical or Latcric um, is just a branch of critical race theory that focuses on the Latino community and immigration, issues of immigration and language and rights and multi-identity. Here is something else that's curious. Unconscious racism. Have you ever heard that? Unconscious racism, racism that operates at an unconscious or subtle level. Now, there is a work which is called um, quite a volume that interacts with um, critical theory. And critical theory is the basis of critical race theory. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And in this book, uh, it is one of the what is called critical theory, the essential writings and critical theory, the essential writings, and I think part of the subtitle, that formed the movement. And some of these scholars that have written from a scholastic and truly um, standpoint, that their basis of critical theory. And one of the articles in it talks about um, the id, the ego, and superego, and racism. Now, tell me, where do you think that's going? If the article is talking about race, id, ego, superego, and racism. Now we have Freudism, do we not? And now we have a responsibility that is not our responsibility. That is, we're irresponsible because we are racist and we're not even fully aware of it. 
we exhibit racism and we don't know that we're being racist. It is a part of a, a, a subconscious. It's another part of us that simply comes out. Well, that is a problem because now you have issues of anthropology that we have to address. And I'm going to talk about these in a moment. Let me say this. When it comes to critical theory, when it comes to critical race theory, the conflict is always and forever with any ideology is always theology. It's always a conflict with theology. It's always a conflict with um, our view of Scripture, bibliology. How do we view Scripture? Therefore, it's a position of how do we view truth? How do we view authority? It's always a conflict with our soteriology. What is salvation? What is man's need? How is he to be saved? What is that source? It's always going to be a conflict with the issue of, as, even as I said earlier, anthropology. That is how we understand man. What is man? What is his constitution? What is man capable of? And of course, what man is capable of, capable of it's tied to how we understand harmardiology. Um, harmardiology, our, our doctrine of sin. And so if we understand man and his sinfulness properly, then right away there are constraints on what man is capable of doing and achieving. But if we see man from a secular standpoint, that man is simply a a creature that is full of human potential and all he needs to do is be nourished in that human potential and he will continue to rise and he will continue to evolve and we will have a world that is a better place. Now, question, look around you, and do you see a better place? No, you do not. It's in conflict because um, it's in conflict with uh, biblical theology. And so is critical race theory, and most definitely so is critical theory in conflict with it as well. So unconscious racism? Um, No. Uh, Could a person be racist and express their racist Ways in ways that are subtle? Absolutely. Yeah, people are prejudiced. People are bigots. And they will show that bigotry in different ways. Uh, the people of God, once we come to Christ, we grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And if at one point in time you had bigotry in your past, it's unacceptable in your present and into your future. Because now you see humans differently. You see them as people that you should be an example for. You're to live an exemplary life before them, that they might see Christ in you. And you cannot possibly be a bigot toward your brother and sister in Christ, who's in the body of Christ, because you're in Christ together. That is your brother and sister. You cannot have that in your heart. But reality is that mankind is sinful. And even in the church, there may be the lingering effects of sin even in churches. Um, one student in my class from last semester, um, he was preaching in Louisiana. And as he was preparing to preach, um, it was a predominantly white church. And let me make this statement. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's also part of the movement nowadays that sometimes they want churches um, to feel guilty because they should be more than what they are. And I made this statement to the students and I made it to many other people as well. Uh, that church should be a church that's what it is based on the will of God, and express in a sincere desire to reach people around them. And guess what? If, they're not, if there isn't a diverse group of people around them, remain who you are to the glory of God. Now, if the neighborhood changes and you see that it's shifting and moving, 
um, and not everyone looks the way that you looked 30 years ago, then you need to think, what are ways that we can still, with the gospel of Christ, reach these people around us, but not feel guilty just because? Um, that's wrong. That's, something, that's a guilt that the world places even on the church, and I find it to be unacceptable. So, but going back to the student, so he's there. Uh, he sees a person of color come in, sits down, and uh, he's thinking, okay, this is good. I'm getting ready to preach the word of God. He preaches. And when it's over, um, he asks, hey, what, where was that gentleman that came in? So he says one of the deacons told him, yes, he came in here, but we told him he wasn't welcome. And we asked him to leave. Now, this, stop. This is not 1945. This is a present student preaching here right now in a church that was he preached in before he came here. And you say, wait a minute, but that, that's not enough data. Um, that's only one incident. And I'm just talking about the one incident as an example that these things still happen. Because you hear something like that, just like you went, because <sighs> you're thinking, no way. Not in 2000. No. It can't be. That's reality. People still harbor things in their heart against others. Um, and there are places, and although California has many quirks and other things with it, um, one thing about California is its diversity, natural diversity. And you look around, and people have gotten used to one another and used to being around others. But that doesn't mean that what's in their heart still may not be there. I can look out now, and I see it reflected even in this audience. I see, I can't even tell you if I, if I go through the room, uh, the countries and backgrounds that maybe some of your people may have come from and cultures that you experience and foods that you like and music that you listen to and how you may, when you listen to a certain song, how you may feel as opposed to how other people may feel and how some of you may be sitting in your hands, even at Grace Church, uh, when you hear certain music played and you like to sway one way or another, but you realize, oh, no, I may stand out too much. Uh, <coughs> I get that, but we come together for the things that are essential, do we not? We absolutely do, and that's the beauty of that adversity that is in the body of Christ, and it's a beautiful thing to look out and see it. It really is, but there's some people in the movement that would say, if you don't have it, then you're racist. Why is your church not more divorce, uh, my diverse? Hmm, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Freudian slip. No. <laughs> uh, why is it not more? Because essentially 90% of the people around us are this makeup within miles. That's who we are to the glory of God. And that's the way we should think about these things. Now, a couple more words, if you will. Education, cultural race theory scholarly movement that applies critical race theory to issues in the field of education, including high-stakes testing, affirmative action, hierarchy in schools, tracking in school discipline, bilingual and multicultural education, and the debate over ethnic studies and the Western canon. Um, now, we're hearing a lot about that today, aren't we? Um, and we see some states fighting back, um, some that have been more prominent in Florida, Virginia, saying that, no, we will not teach um, critical race theory in our schools. Now, there is a bit of a debate because some are saying, well, 
critical race theory, why is that wrong? Because some scholars, and I've listened to some, they would simply say, we just want to make sure that kids are taught a diverse history of America. Why aren't your kids taught? Why do your kids know nothing about the Tulsa riots? And some of you may not know anything about the Tulsa riots. Does that mean that you're racist because you don't know? I think there are things that can be discovered. Um, why is it that people don't know about uh, the massacres in Florida? Why is it that people, no one even knows the name of Emmett Till and your, all of your school body? Why do, does no one know that name? And some are saying in critical race theory, we just want to enlighten um, your students to a fuller history of America and some of its racist past. If that could be the pure sense of it, none of us should have a problem with that. <clears throat> Just like I'd want to know, say, for instance, help me understand a little bit more about the Trail of Tears and Native Americans as they were marched across and many died along the way. Also, then if we're going to do that, help me understand more about um, Italian and Irish immigrants and the struggles that they had in society. Then if we're going to do that, also, I need to be informed about the Chinese and um, at times of unacceptable labors that they face to help build parts of the country. And what about migrant workers in, as well? So is it wrong to say here is a diverse country with a diverse background? No, that's the beauty and part of America. It really is. And none of that should be suppressed. But what has happened now in critical race theory, particularly in education, in pockets, not everyone, but these are the more popular ones and the more forceful ones, is that now what is being taught is especially this idea that a, a white person is inherently racist. It is a part of who you are. And so, and unless, as uh, Jamar Tisby would say in his work, um, How to Fight Racism, is this idea, unless you're an anti-racist, you are in fact a racist. And what he means by that is, um, you may not be a person that has any bigotry in your heart towards anyone, but unless you are fighting the system, unless you're fighting against racism, you are in fact a racist. So essentially, you could go to some white person at any point in time. I could walk up to someone in this room and say to you, well, friend, um, do you have bigotry in your heart? Absolutely not. Do you believe that you're racist? Absolutely not. Um, are you fighting against racism actively? No, I'm not actually. You're a racist. That's the thinking behind it. You say, well, that's a simplified view. But that is essentially the view. It really is. And in their own words, the statement is made, unless you're fighting against racism, you're in fact a racist. Because your complicity, in one sense, is an indication of a racist heart. Um, so when that's also taught in schools, that is a problem. Because essentially now what you're doing is you're at times telling kids you are inherently racist. May there be kids in the school that are racist? There may be. Here's the thing about children. Children are so impressionable, aren't they? They absolutely are. It's, it's wonderful. They learn things so easily. They absorb things. They, they see examples and they follow those examples. They learn things like languages so easily. I wish that uh, I could have some of that even today. Um, you say things around them. They pick up on it. Wonderful impressions. You have to teach them to be a bigot. Bec 
you see kids grow up with one another, and they're with one another, and they grow up in the same neighborhood, or perhaps it's a different neighborhood, but now they're in the same school, and they enjoy one another's company. And then later on, someone tells them there's a line that must be drawn. And then you teach them to be a bigot, and that's wrong. And in part, aspects of CRT is teaching that you're inherently racist, although you may have an innocent heart. But in their mind, because you don't fight against it, you are. And there's a sense of what's called sort of the, the, the empathy fallacy. And this is, this is a belief that um, don't believe that people are truly empathetic towards you. That's a fallacy. Uh, what's, because what's built into people is this sense of racism. And through dialogue and through incremental stages of impl- imp- implementing changes in a given system, it won't come about because people don't have true empathy towards their fellow man. But again, um, it looks at mankind as darkly racist from the very beginning. And, of course, there's an English-only movement and the movement that would say, why are we teaching English only in our school system? That's inherently racist. Who's to say that it should be English? Well, let's stop and apply common sense. Uh, does anyone want to apply any common sense to this argument? Um, I think you already have, haven't you? Hmm, let's see. I am in America. Okay, second, the vast uh, majority of people in America speak what? Our given language is what? Is English. So they, some would say, in the educational realm, when you make that statement, then you are making a a direct statement against the minority languages. No, we're not. We simply said that there is a recognized majority and that minority will adapt some at greater lengths than others will to that majority language. Guess what, friends? I just came back from a month uh, here and there in Africa and when I'm in Ethiopia, they're speaking Amharic. Uh, one of the, you know, it is a Semitic language. Uh, beautiful language. Uh, I'm in the minority I have to work through translators. That's life. It really is. I don't feel oppressed. I don't feel discriminated against because I'm in a land where that's the majority of what people speak. And I go to the signs and I see, okay, can I interpret that? No, I can't. So I'm looking for it in English somewhere. I'm asking for an interpreter. That's how life generally operates. There's not something inherently wrong with there being a minority in any society. And we'll address that in a moment. I know I've said several times I'm, I'm going to address a number of things. Uh, but I do, I promise that I will. <laughs> I promise. Here's some other formal equality. Um, belief that the law should only provide treatment and opportunity that are the same for all. Would we agree with that? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that definition at all. We would agree with that. But then there's another theory. So all of this co- is coming from critical theory. So we have... Masculine theory, feminine theory, we have critical race theory, and now there's also gay, lesbian, queer legal theory. Now, how are gays and queers prejudiced against in the legal system? And not only in the legal system, but just in society. Now, you can rest assured, and it has been said, and it's not simply a scare tactic that says, um, woe is us and look what is the future of the world, But the reality is the world does not like our doctrine, does it? 
It is not friendly towards us. Although we have a heart for the loss, we cannot possibly be advocates of LGBTQ+. It contradicts what we believe. We're to be lights to these people so they might come out of that darkness. Now, what is surely going to be our future is that we will be considered people that are haters. It's already said now, but at some point in time, there will be a greater price for us to pay for our doctrine. And you can rest assured, this theory will play a role in it. Uh, Hegemony, what is this? Um, Domination by the ruling class and unconscious acceptance of that state of affairs by the subordinate group. So hegemony. Um, so there is, a, there is a ruling class in a given group. Here's a problem. I w- this is the statement I want to make. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. CRT, critical theory, the woke movement wants to say, no, how can there be a ruling class? There's a ruling class everywhere. There's a majority everywhere you go. So the question is not that there is a majority or a ruling class. The question is, how does that majority or ruling class interface with everyone else? Um, you go to any given country, and what we need to do sometimes is get out of America. We see everything through the lens of America. Go to any other country, and you have a ruling class, a majority of people, a majority culture. Now, at times, those cultures clash, and they have civil wars. We know that. At times, there's even genocidal atrocities. Um, some years ago, I was in Burundi, and Burundi next to Rwanda. The moment you hear Rwanda, what do you think about? Genocide. And when I was in Burundi ministering to leaders there, I'm talking with people who had come from Rwanda. And this was many years ago, and they were saying, well, I think we've almost healed with one another. Now, if you were to go to Rwanda and you were to look at the people that fought against one another, you couldn't tell the difference between them. But they had some cultural differences between the two. And they eventually clashed with one another, as man will do at times, and he will express the sinfulness of his heart. And the other groups said there are majority groups that rule. There's not anything necessarily inherently wrong with that. And so, but CRT, critical theory, would say that's a problem. Because there is a ruling class. Now, if there is domination, which means oppressive and suppressive domination, of course that's a problem. But it's not inherently a problem just because there's a majority culture. America does have a majority culture. We see a great diversity in it, but still, there's still a majority culture. What it will be 40 years from now, I don't know. We are changing. But just because there's a majority culture doesn't mean that it's inherently wrong leave America and go to other places. There's a majority culture everywhere. So my son, well, one of them, uh, well, he's the only one that's going. I mean, he's now going to be restationed. He's going from Hawaii to Okinawa. And um, poor fellow, right? You know, come on. Uh, You know, spending three and a half years in Hawaii. Um, So he's going to Okinawa now, and he goes into what? He goes into A majority culture. That's reality. When I travel about and I go to different places, I go into a culture and I adapt to that culture. Even at times where people are saying, oh, they're kind of offended if you do that or ask that. Oh, I didn't know. Totally unaware. 
I'm sorry about that. And, and it seems to be this is a part of the culture in all places. It seems like uh, especially older moms love to cook large meals. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> and it's like, well, Pastor, if you don't eat it, they're going to be offended. <laughs> oh, my. Well, unto the Lord, I'll do it, right? Because <laughs> at times well, I cannot eat another bite. <laughs> and the only thing about being courteous in these cultures, you eat it so they think you want more. And if you don't eat it, they're offended. So what do you do, right? You do it unto the Lord and you go for a run afterwards or something. So there's a majority, but it's not inherently wrong. And of course, we've heard a lot about intersectionality. The basis of it is this. Uh, there are going to be groups. and This majority group will suppress these other smaller groups. But sometimes what we must do, they must interface with one another and link arms with one another to fight that majority power. So intersect. Let's intersect with one another. The danger in that is this. You will intersect at times with people that you may not necessarily agree with. So now I talk to some of my friends um, and I say, I don't understand you. Because now... You're joining hands with people from, say, for instance, LGBTQ, extreme liberalism. You know those values aren't your values. And often the response is, yes, but we need to join our power together to fight against the greater oppressive power. Um, And this is, in a nutshell, what it is. So you have these oppressed groups who join to say, let's fight against the greater oppressive power. So you have a person, you can have a woman who joins with LBDTQ because now we're stronger together. And then various minorities join with that group as well. And minorities within the minority group join with it as well. Say, for instance, um, if we think about just from the standpoint of being black. Um, so a woman of color that's also queer. Now there are three levels of intersection that are there. Is this wrong or right? Well, that's wrong. Now, in history, let me, here's a word for you. In history, um, there have been civil revolts, and it did require that people of different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, join together to fight against another power. Has that happened in history? Absolutely, it has happened in history. Uh, Is it necessary at times? It surely is. Even politically, let's be honest about it. Let's stop for a moment. Um... And I'll just make the statement. I won't ask for raising of hands. Um, something is telling me that most of you are going to vote conservative. Is that pretty much true? All right, good. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you may vote a particular party, and I won't name it, you know. You may vote a particular party. You must know that you intersect with people that you don't agree with. You must know that, right? Let's not be naive and think that everybody in that party Um, holds to all the positions that you hold to as a Christian. You say, I'm in this party. uh, I'm joining with people that may disagree with, but where we do intersect, if you will, is sufficient enough to say, I'll join with you to defeat this other party. We do it all the time. Um, But obviously, there is a line that must be drawn. So, here's this. Uh, the sweeping effect of wokeness in CRT. What is it? In a nutshell, 
because today it has a sweeping effect. Um, it is taught at higher levels of education. Um, there is an attempt in many places to teach it even at the lowest level of education. Um, it affects then even military training today, wokeness and CRT. Some aspects of some branches are fighting it perhaps more than others. Others have given into it more. Um, so it affects that. Uh, it affects political decisions, does it not? Uh, it affects denominations. It is in denominations. So it is wide sweeping. There's certain movements that come and go. This is not one that will simply come and go. And I've said this to many people before, and I'll say it to you. Say, for instance, um, when it comes to certain movements that are within evangelicalism. How many of you remember uh, the emergent movement, um, e- emergent church? And that was a big to-do a while back, emergent churches, the sense in which um, we believe in Jesus, but we're upset with the traditional church. So we're leaving church as it is, and we want to focus more on Jesus. We want to be more emergent. And so now you had a bunch of preachers uh, who were wearing skinny jeans and sipping lattes while they were preaching on a stool um, and trying to identify with people in the emergent church. Um, And I remember that. The emergent church, when I was pastoring at that time, I wasn't back here at Grace Church. It's amazing. I've been back eight years. Where does the time go, right? Um, I was pastoring. I didn't care about the emergent church. Who cares? We weren't having that discussion. The people that I was reaching and ministering to and the pastors that I knew, uh, that, that wasn't the forefront of their concerns for ministry. So the only reason I found more about the emergent church when I was doing some of my doctoral studies and it was a part of a, a seminar that was required. Other than that, I didn't care because it wasn't far sweeping. Presidents weren't talking about the emergent church. Prime ministers weren't talking about the emergent church. No branch of the military was informing people about the emergent church. Yeah, the emergent church wasn't taught in higher institutions. No one was teaching the emergent church in grade schools. But CRT, CT, wokeness, everywhere. So it's here to stay. For how long, I don't know. I mean, will it be society's downfall? Um, I'm no prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I don't know. But it is something we have to pay attention to. And we need to understand the relationship of wokeness to critical theory. And because the basis for critical race theory is critical theory. Now, in a nutshell, yes, its, it's basis is Marxist, undoubtedly. Um, and critical theory sought to examine and focus on systems of power. And if we can unravel why these systems of power operate, then perhaps then we can counter it with measures that would make society better. But there's some ways in which it fails. Now, if, if one could, in its purest sense, just work on systems of power, you would say that's fine. Uh, through history, we've seen that we need to address systems of power. Um, I was, um, when I fly a lot, I don't, I mean, there's a thousand movies you can watch. I tend not to do that. I look for something that's like some documentary or something like that. I watched two that were, I thought, worthwhile. One that Oh, both of them I mentioned to you. One is, I think everyone should view this. I think everyone should see Emmanuel. 
Emmanuel is a documentary that is looking at, um, they're interviewing people from Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, 2015. Some of you may remember. A young man walks into Wednesday night prayer service. They invite him into the prayer service. They pray with him. They sing songs. And afterwards, he pulls out a nine millimeter and begins shooting everyone. Nine people dead. Um, Eventually, they, they catch him. He is right presently on death row at this point. Nine people dead. Now, at that time, um, our country was swelling. Um, there were protests everywhere apart from what had happened in Charleston. BLM is on the rise. Um, and Charleston, with its history, if you don't know, um, in Charleston, South Carolina, when it came to slavery and bigotry, the hub of, of that, um, even from a technical standpoint, the vast majority of slaves that would come into America came through Charleston. And I've been to downtown Charleston. It's a beautiful city. I love it. Um, I could live there. Um, and I've been to the marketplace where people were sold. And now it's something different. You can go there and buy, you know, things from Charleston. But you walk through it realizing, oh, my. At this point, someone said, I'll take the man. And another person says, I'll take the woman. And another person says, I'll take the children. And you walk through it and say, this is, but here we are. So Charleston has had a history. And not only back to slavery, but just prejudice throughout. South Carolina was one of the worst places. So Charleston was about to explode because of this. And they interviewed these people. And there was an opportunity when the suspect was going to be in court and the families could address him. The pastor said to them, don't say a word to him. Don't say a word. Your words will go down in history. You may say something you don't regret. They came out and one woman who her mother, he killed her mother, she said this. She said, I forgive you. You need Christ. Then the next person, I forgive you. You need to repent. And they interviewed a young man whose mother was killed, and he was a baseball player, and he said that, I don't know what happened to me. I just thought this is what I believed all my life. He says, I told him that I forgive him. He needed to repent, and he needed Christ. And it was interesting because in the interview, his younger sister was next to him, and the younger sister looks up to him like, what are you doing? How are you forgiving this person? They interviewed another man, and he, his sister was killed. And this is what he said. It's, it's, uh, I don't, hmm. He said, um, you know, the Christian life is a journey. <laughs> and he said, I'm in a journey right now. I'm not ready to forgive. He said, he shot my sister seven times. And he used what are called um, defense rounds. And a defense round is what you might use for home protection as opposed to just at the range because they're meant to do damage to you internally. And he said, he shot her seven times. And he said this. He said, if he can tell me which bullet killed her, maybe I would talk to him. Now, what happened was this. These people forgave. The city quieted down. They interviewed one person that was a BLM advocate and representative, and it was so interesting. I'll never forget it. He said, well, now that they've forgiven him, I guess we can't can't have a movement. 
Think about that. So it was essentially, now that they've taken the higher road, there's nothing for us to do here. That tells you something even about some in that movement. What a wonderful thing that should be. And the city recognized, even the mayor talked, yes, we've had a horrible past, but we, we can get past this. As believers, we have to be a light. I would recommend that you watch Emmanuel. Um, it's worth it to see how you can respond to the sinfulness of man. Um, I watched something else that was about the Holocaust. That's a system. It was a system. It was a law. And how much can one talk about the Holocaust and the atrocities of it? Some of you are familiar with Jim Crow laws. That was the law that people would be prejudiced. I think about someone like my dad at times. My dad fought at the end of World War II, and he fought in Korea. And, you know, he always speaks so well of serving his country, and he loved his country. And that's the part where I, it's sort of in my blood as well, passed on to me. Um, but it was so interesting. Here it is. My dad was willing to die for his country, but would come back and couldn't eat at certain places or drink certain fountains in his country. But he never let that cause him to be bitter in his heart. It was just a reality that people are who they are. Are we beyond that? I sure hope we are. Are we beyond it? I believe that we are. Uh, is there work ahead? Absolutely, there always will be. There will be work ahead until Jesus Christ comes back again. Amen? That is the reality. So, uh, there's much more I need to say about critical theory. I'll have to have like five points, but I have ten minutes. So, <laughs> I'm going to find a way. I'm going to type it out, and I'll, I'll put the PowerPoint, and I'll type this out, and it'll be online for you to read it, Okay. I may uh, we'll work it out. All right, let's let's move ahead. Critical race theory. Here are some passages um, that you need to interact with and understand. Um, that sometimes people say, well, these passages clearly teach um, social justice. Leviticus nineteen in loving one's neighbor, and that is in fact true. We should love one's neighbor. We are called to do that. However, the question is to what extent. Um, is God calling us to express that love? Does it mean that we love to the disregard of our doctrinal convictions? And obviously not. Uh, Leviticus 25, in the year of Jubilee, there's a time in which God says, now you are free. That's exactly what it's teaching. When that year of Jubilee came around, that was a way for God to show or say, show graciousness to your fellow man. But that is not for us to say that we must take the resources of another and give it to others. Um, Isaiah 58, in true fasting, God there shows that there should be justice in society. And what is that true fast? The true fast, God says to the people of of God, uh, this is the fast which I have chosen. Because they were fasting, but he says, you're not fasting that your, your words can be heard on high. He says, do this as a fast. That free those that are captive. Essentially, stop overpricing um, in the things that you're selling. Stop overcharging in your interest. That's the fast that I'm looking for for the people of God. Would that be true for us today? Should it be true in the church? Absolutely. It's meant to be for today. 
Jeremiah 22 and oppressing the poor. God absolutely says you shall not oppress the poor. And this is what we have to understand. The problem with CRT and the woke movement is that if they're poor, there must be oppression. Is that necessarily the case? No, it's not. We will always have the poor with us. Don't look with indifference towards the poor. But just because they're poor doesn't mean that there's an oppressive power making them poor. Amos, and there's justice from above that should be um, a point that we all strive for and desire. Micah 6, in the humble walk, God says, I want justice from you. And what is that justice? Well, we walk with humility and we walk with justice and fairness towards that fellow man. That is simply a call for the Christian life. There's nothing particularly woke about this passage. And these other texts as well from Matthew and Luke and even in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we surely should help the needy. We see that's a part of the body of Christ. The early church, imagine the early church now, they're going to be ostracized, those in Jerusalem. They're not going to have resources. They're going to be disowned. So now life would be hard for them. So even others should give so that they can have resources. Should we do that in the church today? Of course we should. That's not woke. That's just a biblical principle. That's all it is. Let me close with these kind of way to, to pull some thoughts together. A matter of anthropology, homardiology, and eschatology. Here's a statement. One day Christ will establish true justice on the earth. Isaiah 42. Um, sort of a utopian um, ideology that's sought by the woke movement will not be achieved. Why? Because they're fallen governments and fallen people. Only Christ can establish this. We said early, anthropology, man does not have that potential. Why does he not have the potential? Because of sin, harmadiology. He is bound. He will not reach this utopia. Um, The scripture is clear that society will become worse and worse. This is what Paul says. You should prepare for this. However, I do need to say this. Just because we know society is, is becoming worse, we don't look at society with indifference. We still show kindness towards people. And if we have resources where we can help someone, we help them, whether they be Christian or non-Christian. I go to places that are unlike here in the States, and you see people in needs, and you see places in which I've been around the world, and you say to yourself, how is it that people live like that? I am so fortunate. You are so fortunate to have what you have. One pastor some years ago, um, this was when I was in, the, uh, in, in Haiti. No, in, this was in the Dominican Republic because I went back and forth between the two. Um, and he came to me and I spoke into the church and he said he wanted me to see his new house that he had built. And I went to his home and um, he was just so enthusiastic about it. And he showed it to me, and I thought, oh, my. And, you know, tin roof. And it was about this, a little bit smaller than this stage area. Um, And he had curtains that divided it. You know, here was the kitchen area. Um, Here was their bedroom. Here were the kids. Here was the sort of living area right about here. And he just had such a sense of joy about it. Such a sense of joy. This is what, look what the Lord has given me, Pastor. And I thought, amen. (laughs) 
what a wonderful place. And he went out and said, I, I just, we have to have a drink over this. And I said, well, okay. And uh, he said he went and he went and got a Pepsi. Now, some of you know me. Um, I don't drink sodas. Um, and he went and got a soda and he paid for the soda himself. It was the best Pepsi I've ever had in life. <laughs> it was the best Pepsi I've had in life. Because I knew that 50 cents for him was something. And I went back home and I told Joanna about it. And I said, well, we were thinking about like expanding this room. And we're going to have this like glass. And it's going to be wonderful furniture in there. I said, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And we talked about it. And we gave the money away to some people over there that needed it. Did I have to do that? No. I could have come back and in good conscience, if God so led, hey, let's build another story. Um, You have a heart for people, but because they they have less than you doesn't mean necessarily that they're oppressed. And many times I have found in my experience, some of these people have more joy and happiness than people have a thousand times what they have because they're content in the Lord. Um. And obviously, it's an eschatology. Christ will control the end of the ages. Amen? Um, Marxism, in its attempt to redefine society and redirect society, um, that eschatology will not be realized. It's a matter of soteriology. So we can say this, the woke movement is not merely a social construct or philosophical system. It is another religion. Its proponents espouse a different gospel, holding the deep-seated religious conviction that what they espouse is the means to save people from the original sin of racism. It is another religion. And uh, um, there's a book that is called Woke Inc., uncovering um, the social justice scam of corporate America. And he investigates the idea of the religious beliefs and how well they hold to them, making it, in fact, a religion. It's a matter of divine providence. How is it a matter of divine providence? Christians can rest in the sovereign outworking of God's redemptive plan. And this includes everything, such as the African diaspora, that is, the people that were taken from that and spread all over the earth. God is in absolute control, and he's unfolding his sovereign plan, and we trust that. Um, it's a matter of orthopraxy. What do we mean by that? Believers are called to do what? We, we're to demonstrate compassion towards our fellow man when they're treated unjustly. Um, although we may denounce critical race theory as in, inherently unbiblical, we have to listen to people and where they are in life. It's a matter of this. It's a matter of redemptive inclusion. We are a part of a family, and that family brings us together in bonds that are unbreakable. And intersectionality is a means in which they use to create power to fight against the system. We are people that are bound to one another by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we must not allow anything, anything to tear us apart. See, there are people that would tell us that right now, there are people in this room, you're inherently racist. You need to make an apologist to everyone else that's in this room. Not so. Not so at all. And there are people in this movement that would say, why do you identify with this people group? That's not your people group. 
but they are my people. And, and, and that goes beyond uh, ethnicity, and it goes beyond race. And that's why at times, even when I travel around the world, I see people that I've never seen before, and I have this brotherly affection for them because we're bound to Christ. Amen? And churches have been split over this issue, and I find it to be unacceptable. I'm sure you would as well. It's also this. It's a matter of Great Commission priority. In keeping with our Great Commission, our primary focus must be the good, the good news of salvation. It can be a distraction. I do say can be. Should you still have a heart for the lost and for people that are facing difficulties in life? Absolutely you should. Is there still prejudice in parts of our country? Absolutely it is because people are here. And as long as people are here, there will be. It's a matter of this. It's a matter of consistent harmoniology. And this is, I want you to listen to me on a moment for this. It has to be consistent in its application of harmoniology. And what I'm saying is this. We say that men are sinful. It's a matter of the heart. So we preach the gospel to change the heart. And often we'll say, and you've heard it said here, and I'm not, and I would agree with it. Well, we cannot um, focus too much on legislation because legislation will not do what? It won't change the heart, right? So if we say to a given group, we have now, we have more people in the Supreme Court. Great. We're going to get rid of this governor. Great. We're going to change the legislators. Great. We're going to take back Congress. We're going to take back the Senate. America will be America again. Oh, boy. Right? And we say all of these things, okay, and people are still going to hell. And then we say that, we say, wait a minute, don't focus too much on those things because that's just legislation. Nothing will change their heart. Then be consistent with it then. Here's the consistency. Then if, in fact, there was a Jim Crow Crow law at some point in time and it was taken away, did that change anyone's heart? Just like when you added a law to sort of, in one sense, correct it, it didn't change your heart. And when it, when it was taken away, it didn't change anyone's heart. People will find ways to still commit sins that are in their heart. So there's no way, say, for instance, you go into the deep south and you say, okay, now Jim Crow is over. And everyone in the deep south says, oh, wonderful. The law has changed. I love my brother and sister of color like never before. If you believe that, then I have some, some beach pro- property in Oklahoma for you. It doesn't work that way. Be consistent. Sinners are sinners. You add a law, it, it won't change them. Now, we do have laws because laws will affect morality. Sometimes we say they won't affect morality. Absolutely they do. They affect morality all the time. You cannot simply speed the way you... You, so you say to yourself, oh, I'm going 75. I should be going 60. Let me slow down. There are laws that say if you lie about this in your taxes, you will pay a price. So you say to yourself, I'm not willing to pay that price. Let me correct myself. And we could go on and on and on. But ultimately, that won't change the heart. And so be consistent. Just because a law is taken away doesn't mean that the hearts of people have changed. And some of those same people may be in places of power. And if they're in places of power with the same heart, 
they will at times do wrong things to people they don't like. Now, obviously, there are consequences now to some of those actions. And they may say to themselves, hmm, if we do this, that means we're going to lose tax status or we're going to lose um, support or wherever it may be. But it's still a matter of the heart. Be consistent in it. Do you understand what I'm saying in that? Okay. If you don't, um, talk to me afterwards, all right? I really want you to get that. Uh, And here's the last thing, I think. It's a matter of recognition. All movements have different levels of expression. And there are people within CRT that they would say, no, we just want people to have a better sense of history of America. And others would say, no, we need to teach these kids that they're inherently racist. We need to learn to talk to these people. Um, I've always found that in social media, it is so easy to tear people down um, as opposed to speaking truth to them. It's very easy to do. Interact with people. I would even say in a Christian manner, argue with them over issues. But remember, you have a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And keep that witness consistent. It isn't, last one, it is this, a matter of diverse privileges. Not everyone has the same level of privilege. And this is where we have to get outside of America. Right now, if you go to South Africa, uh, because as apartheid ended in 1994, the ANC, African National Congress, has instituted certain changes in South Africa. um, And actually, it is just the opposite. You're privileged if you are a black person. It is in law. You're not privileged if you're white. So unfortunately, South Africa, unlike um, Namibia and Botswana, who overcame prejudices in their system, they've they've taken an entirely different path in South Africa. Um, Privileges exist for all of us. If you go to certain places based on who you are as a person, you will have privileges. That's reality. It just is. Because we tend to gravitate towards people that we are what? Most familiar with and that we identify with. And at times, if it comes to showing some privileges or job opportunities or or tips or whatever it may be, you will generally express those to the people that you have identified with and you are surrounded with. That's a privilege. Doesn't mean that you're inherently prejudiced because you express that privilege. That is just a reality of who we are. If you go to another country... You will not be as privileged because you're an outsider. We don't know you. You're a foreigner. We aren't sure if we can trust you. Privileges exist when it comes to class. We talk about this all the time, don't we? How is it that sometimes we'll call it the professional athlete privilege? Because you say to yourself, I can't believe it. How is it that he got off with that? Privilege. We talk about it when it comes to politics. I can't believe that this politician got away with something that's so blatantly obvious. Privilege. This person has a certain background and socioeconomic status, and they have people who can defend them like another person may not have. That's a privilege. Society is full of those privileges um, because we, we live in a broken world. And it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily broken that, say, for instance, people identify with one group more than they do with another because they have a background. 
Is it broken that, say, for instance, the Italian-American identifies with their people because they have a certain background and they talk about certain things and they have a history? Not necessarily. If someone wants to participate in that conversation and you absolutely exclude them, that's a problem. Uh, More to be said the next time, perhaps. Uh, If you have any questions, feel free to come up and talk with me. The Lord be with you until we meet again.